everybody, and welcome to another episode of Savvy Talk. I am so excited and honored, to be honest with you, to have with us Dr. Russell Kennedy uh, on the show today. As you know, we're doing an expert series, so we wanted to talk to the world's leading experts around topics that we really care about. And I think if anything we have learned in the last couple of years is how important our well-being, our personal lives, our mental health is. And anxiety has been one of the words that has come up a lot. And now people openly talk about it and openly figure out how do we deal with it. And everybody on this planet suffers from some form of anxiety. And we think about how to, you know, level up and really improve ourselves. It doesn't just come from communications. It doesn't come from uh, you know, being good at your jobs, you really got to be good with yourself. And to be good with yourself, you have to be in tune with what you're feeling and what you're going through. And I have been reading Dr. Russell's book. I have been following him and I'm a huge fan of his work. And I'm so delighted to have him on the show today because I feel like he's going to bring everyone listening tremendous, tremendous value. And I also have an ulterior motive. I want to help him scale his story and message because I think he can help a lot of people. And I also want to get him to Dubai. And so I'm like, Dr. Russell, how can we work together? And so I'm really, really delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us. It's a real pleasure to be here. It really is. So Dr. Russell, I'm not going to, I'm going to read a little bit about your bio, but you are an award-winning, you know, you have a best-selling book on Amazon, which we're going to put up here. So everyone can take a look at it. We'd love you guys to order this book. Ah, there it is. Uh, you're a neuroscientist, a medical doctor. Uh, you're coming to us today from Canada, but you also speak a lot. You do yoga, you do meditation, and you started your career as a stand-up comic. So before we go into the questions that we really want to, you know, help everyone understand is tell us a little about who you are, how, what is your story and how did you get in, become the anxiety MD? Okay. So, uh, the short version, cause uh, usually this goes on for hours, but the short version is I grew up with a father with schizophrenia and bipolar. So life was chaotic, you know, in my house and so I got used to always being prepared and hyper vigilant for the other shoe to drop because I never, my dad was never abusive or violent, but he would lose his mind, right? And my mother was a, uh, a reserved British uh, registered nurse. So she wasn't really able to give my brother and I kind of the love and the effect. Like she took care of us like structure, roof over our head, meals, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we're, we're British. We, we don't need any help. You know, we stiff up on it and all that, you know, so you can't give what you didn't get. Um, probably in my late teens, when I look back, I really start seeing, like I started having health anxiety in my late teens and that grew, uh, as I got into medical school, of course, cause the crucible of medical school is going to bring up anything that is, you know, kind of if you got a bit of a screw loose in your head, which a lot of medical doctors do, because why would you, why would you sacrifice 10 years of your youth to go and do this, you know, this thing of being a medical doctor? So the anxiety in medical school just got worse and worse and worse. And eventually I, I practiced for like 22 plus years and I kind of burned out. Uh, not kind of, I did burn out. Yeah. And I, I got a little, a little tired of the medical model of just, you know, giving prescriptions and cause I could see things. Here's the thing about me. My little gift is that I can see the trauma in you, right? So I can see the trauma in people. I know where it is. 
I, I, I can find it. I can help you bring it up to the surface so you can heal it. So I saw all these people who would come in to see me about, you know, chest problems or, or iterable bowel syndrome or migraines or whatever. And I could see that they were abused as children or they had this, you know, trauma when they grew up. So I got very frustrated doing that. So I left medicine and I started doing this about 10 years ago. And I do intuitive sessions for people. And, and I really just want to help people understand that anxiety really has more to do with a feeling state in your body, usually from unresolved trauma than it does with your mind. Your mind is more this passive reflector of this old trauma that's still held in you. Most therapies try and fix the thoughts and the thoughts are the byproduct. The thoughts aren't really the ultimate cause. Although we believe they are because we have this horrible thought, then we have this horrible feeling. So we think, oh, it must be the thought. But the feeling was actually there before the thought. So that's my big, that's my big thing. That's my intro. That's, that's, that's what I work on. You think anxiety is rooted in the body, in a feeling? Yep caused by trauma, not a thought because everyone thinks it's in your head and like the anxiety just starts to go monkey mind or whatever they call that, where you just keep going and thinking and overthinking and overthinking. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is it's related to something that you're actually feeling in your body. Yeah. And I think, you know, the short version of that, I hope I'll try, is that when we're children, we experience a trauma that's too much for us to bear. Parents get divorced, have an abusive parent, an alcoholic parent, an addictive parent, whatever. It's too much for us to bear. So we repress it, as Freud would say, we repress it down into our unconscious. So we don't have to be aware of it because it's too painful. Now, the, the body is a representation of the unconscious mind. So that gets offloaded into the body and it, it gets reinforced so often, that protective reflex gets so uh, reinforced so often that it, that trauma energy is stuck in you, in your body. And then we don't even realize that when we get anxious, we start thinking, oh, this is just my overthinking. But really, the engine of your overthinking is this alarm in your body that's constantly being read by the mind, this process called interoception. The mind is always reading the body. So if the mind reads this alarm in your body, it's not going to make up stories about puppies, cookies, and, and picnics. It's going to make up negative stories to be consistent with this negative feeling. So we're trying to treat the thoughts when the thoughts are just like the, the, the effect, they're the symptom, they're not the underlying root cause, which is why people who go through therapy for 30 years aren't that much better. Trying to give a little bit of value in terms of solutions. So just on this piece, let's sure. say you do have some trauma that you feel in your body, it's, it's manifesting itself into anxiety into your head. How do you heal the body or how do you handle that? Like, what's the best thing that people should be thinking about if they can identify the alarm that's in their head is coming actually from their feeling or their body? What's the first step? Well, the first step, I think, is when you're feeling anxious, which I like to call alarm. I don't like the word anxiety very much because it doesn't have a whole lot of consciousness to it. Words okay. have consciousness, right? So if you say anxiety, anxiety doesn't have a lot of consciousness to it. A lot of people don't even know what anxiety is because they've never really felt it. Okay. But if you say alarm, everybody's been alarmed. Everybody knows what alarm feels like. So when you focus on the fact that you have this alarm in your system, so when you're feeling worried about your kids or your job or whatever, it's like, okay, where in my body do I actually feel this? Like close your eyes, relax your jaw, relax your shoulders, and just go, where in my body do I feel this? And often always it's in the midline. Not, I mean, not, all, not always. It can be in your shoulders. It can be in your hips. Um, but usually it's kind of in the cent central area around your chest. For me, it's this sort of hot, 
purple, sharp, crystalline. Um, it's about the size of my fist. It pushes up into my heart and it pushes into my back. That's my alarm that's sitting right in my solar plexus. So once I found that, and here's the real kicker, and, and as, a, as a medical doctor, I want to freak out when I talk about this because it sounds so woo and so ethereal. But I believe that that alarm is my younger self trapped in that trauma that's trying to get my attention. Now, typically what we do with that is it's like this hurts, I'm going to push this away. So the analogy that I usually draw is what if a child came up to you in a grocery store who had lost their parent and they had their hands up to be picked up because they needed comfort? Of course you would pick them up. Of course, of course. you would comfort them. But we don't do that for ourselves because that child holds our pain. So we push that child away and, and that child just gets louder and our alarm gets louder and then our anxiety gets louder. So it just gets worse and worse and worse. So we're not actually, again, we're not actually healing the underlying cause, which is connecting with that feeling. Because I think that's how we do it is we connect, put our hand over it, breathe into it, really connect with that feeling. Because that is actually what's going to heal you at the root cause. Fixing your thoughts is good. I have nothing against cognitive therapies or talk therapy. It's just that talk therapy alone isn't really going to get at the ultimate cause, which is this alarm stored in your body, typically from unresolved trauma. And I'll just finish up by saying, yeah. people always say, well, it, everything isn't about childhood trauma. It's not. You can have inherited family trauma. The number of people that I see that said, you know, I had a great childhood. My parents were wonderful. And mm -hmm. I said, well, go and ask your parents if you had a separation from it's like, yeah, when I was born, I was in an incubator for a month, or my parents went away on vacation when I was two years old for a month. You know, like it's, you look back and you see these separations, and, and you, clearly I can see them. And people tend to minimize their traumas from their parents because they had to tell themselves, oh, it's okay if dad hits me. It's okay if dad's drunk. And they tell themselves that so often that when I ask them, how was your childhood? They say, it was really good. And they ignore the fact that their, their father was an abusive alcoholic. They ignore the fact that their mother was schizophrenic. They ignore all these facts because since they were children, they've been telling themselves it's not that big of a deal. So when you ask them, they're not aware of it. So one of the things, the big takeaways, which is just building off the point you just talked about, was that all anxiety is separation anxiety. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, that's, that's something I got from developmental psychologist Gordon Newfeld. And I've taken a bunch of his courses and, and I think he really hits the nail on the head as far as why our kids are suffering so much with anxiety. So it's a separation of some kind. Typically, it's a separation from you, from your parent. Okay. And then what happens is you start judging, abandoning, blaming, and shaming yourself as a child because the crap that goes on in your household you can't blame your parent because your parents are seen as these omnipotent figures that are looking after you, right? So there's only one person left to blame, which is yourself. And there's this great saying that says, if you abuse, neglect, or abandon a child, the, the child doesn't stop loving the parent. They stop loving themselves. So that sets the seeds of this split that occurs when we're younger. And then because we feel negative towards ourselves, our mind, which is a compulsive meaning make sense machine it makes sense of how bad we are. And then it tells us that over and over and over again. And as we split, as we get older, and that, that split becomes wider and wider and wider, and we get so used to judging, abandoning, blaming, and shaming, what I call jabs, taking these jabs at ourselves, that of course we're gonna create this alarm in our system. You know, so it's just a natural byproduct. Is 
explain JABS again? Okay, so JABS is a little acronym. I got through med school with acronyms. Like everything is, I remember everything like making it a, a word about it and then going from there. So it stands for self-judgment, self-abandonment, self-blame, and self-shame, which right. is what happens to a child when there's stuff in their environment, at, in, their, in their household, that they have no control over that's bad. I can't blame the parents. They got to blame themselves. So when you blame yourself, you start thinking of all these reasons because your mind has to make sense of why you're blaming yourself. So you think of all these reasons why you're bad. Mm -hmm. And this is how it starts. This is how eating disorders start. This is how depression starts. This is how anxiety starts is this fundamental split from ourselves, typically in childhood, that doesn't allow us to, to be joined. So all anxiety is separation anxiety, and it's mostly separation from yourself. Now, it started probably from a separation from your parent, but you take that ball and you run with it. There's things like situational anxiety. Like yeah. I get a little bit anxious before I travel. Sure. Like I'm leaving for Dubai tomorrow. I know. I'm feeling a little bit anxious in my stomach. I, it's actually, it happens to me almost time every time I go overseas. Not when I travel in the US. Okay. But I get anxious before I travel or, you know, sometimes before I get, you know, someone who's listening, you know, does a big speech. I don't get anxious when I go to speak, but some people get really anxiety over like public speaking or before an interview. Like there's a situation that causes them to feel stressed. Maybe they call it anxiety. Yep. So how do we know if we're just a little bit stressed out or if we actually need to learn techniques to manage our anxiety? Yeah. I mean, with specific events, like if you're going away on an overseas trip or, or, you know, you're going home for Christmas, you know, these are intense events. So anxiety is just an activation of your nervous system in okay. general. And, and everyone has it to some point, we have the sympathetic wing, which is kind of fight or flight, and this parasympathetic wing of our nervous system, which is rest and digest. So when we get excited about anything, our sympathetic nervous system will rise up. Now, if you have the anxiety template in your system already, when that sympathetic nervous system rises up, there is this sense of alarm in your system, or at least activation. And typically what the mind will do is, when we have felt this sensation before, there has been something scary in our lives. So what we look for then to make sense of that is, okay, I'm feeling this sympathetic activation, what is scary? And then we go, well, I'm traveling overseas. I'm going back home to see my parents, whatever. Now, the story that you make around that is going to be really critical. And this is leaning back to the healing part, is that once you learn that you don't necessarily have to add a negative story to that and just sit with that feeling, that yeah. feeling will pass. Now, the proviso of that is if you have you know severe emotional, physical, sexual abuse, it doesn't pass that quickly, yeah. you know, and we need some help with that. But in general, it's really a disconnection from yourself. And it's like, how can you, you know, if you think of the, the travel, can you find that energy in yeah. your body? Yeah. So basically I need to tell myself I'm going to be safe when I get there. Everything is going to be fine. And like, I've taken a million trips before. Like it's, That's it's one the thing. thoughts that I add to the feeling in my stomach that makes it worse. Yeah, but that's the cognitive part, Ma. So, so okay, now, for a second, when you think about this overseas trip, if you close your eyes for a second, just relax your shoulders, relax your jaw, feel your butt in the chair, feel the support of that chair kind of supporting you because it's connected to the earth. 
So if you scan your body and you think of this sort of fear, is there a place in your body that kind of goes, hey, you know, this is a little like achy or pain or pressure sensation? Just a little, I just feel a little nervous in my stomach. Okay, so put your hand over that. And just see if you can connect with that feeling in your stomach. And then if you can breathe into it, if you can just allow it to be there and even embrace that feeling, even though it feels uncomfortable. Now, if you do that in combination with reassuring yourselves cognitively, then what you do is you help the cognitive structures of your brain, the neocortex, the new part of our brain, and the feeling because the subcortex, the place that holds a lot of our old anxiety is below the level of cognition, it doesn't, doesn't understand words but it understands feeling. So if you can take some deep breaths, breathe into that area, put your hand over it, really reassure it and look at it as little Maha. You know, did you experience when you were younger a separation from your parents where you went away a long distance? Yes. Because you're probably bringing back up that same feeling that you had back then now, because there's a part of our brain called the insular cortex, I-N-S-U-L-A that kind of mediates the mind and the body together. And I believe that when we go through traumas as a child, and, and they don't have to be big traumas, that that insula creates a mental picture of your body at the time the trauma was happening. So it kind of recreates the past in your body. And as soon as that, that past in your body is recreated, the thoughts that were consistent with that feeling will just automatically come into your head. Yeah. You think because you've thought them, they have credibility when they really don't. Like, I'm afraid of this trip. Well, you've done this trip many, many times before. Many times, clearly, yeah. clearly, you're not afraid of the trip. But yeah. clearly, it's probably what we call an implicit memory, which is those memories that aren't accessible by our cognitive word language structure. They are accessible only by feeling. And to heal that, and anxiety at a, at a bigger level is, this is what anxiety is. It's this old subcortical below the cortex program okay. that we have to change and the language of that subcortical structures those subcortical structures amygdala hippocampus pons medulla brainstem is feeling it doesn't understand words so to heal anxiety we need to to go at the cognitive absolutely but we also need to go at the, at the subcognitive too at the place where this was probably encoded probably when you were a child and we can change that through feeling we can't really change it through words. And that's why people that go through years and years of talk therapy, yes, the cognitive part of the brain goes, okay, yeah, I understand I'm not in danger. But that feeling part is still there. And we are much more ruled by our feelings than we are our thoughts. But we believe the opposite. We believe that our thoughts rule it. We're rational creatures. We're not. We act in emotional ways. And then we rationalize it cognitively. We buy that thing that's too expensive for us. And then we, we get afraid and then we rationalize. Well, you know, it, it, it might, it, it might go, the price might go higher or whatever. We just start rationalizing. So we're, we're much better at making sense of our feeling than we are from, from mm -hmm. actually allowing the feeling to stay there and just dealing with the feeling. When we think that anxiety is overthinking and in our heads, it's actually the feeling of the emotion. And if we can deal with the emotion of, reassuring ourselves, calming ourselves. How, how important is, is breath work and breathing to your process or your 
advice to to people that you in your research? I mean, it's an aspect of it for sure. I think breath is the only real conscious connection to our autonomic nervous system. Okay. Right. So we can't sort of, you know, we're not yogis. We can't just sort of drop our heart rate, drop our blood pressure just by thinking about it. But we can have conscious control over our breath. So we can start sending ourselves into this sort of body state that is relaxed, that is calm. Because here's what happened. So one of the things I like to say is that there's this old Henry Ford saying that says, whether you can or you can't, you're right. So your brain will support you regardless of which choice that you make. So let's say I'm a younger man. I see a woman that I would like to ask out. Now, if I walk over and ask her out, what will happen is the endogenous opiates in my brain, uh, runner's high kind of chemicals that we get, uh, will activate when I'm facing a threat. If, if I'm proactive about that threat, I, I will secrete dopamine, which will, will tell me, hey, you're on the right track. Go and ask this per person out. Now, if I decide, no, um, she's going to reject me or whatever, my brain will also support me. It'll start creating cortisol. It'll start creating norepinephrine in my brain, which says, hey, 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 danger, danger, danger. Stress hormone cortisol. Exactly. So, so basically what happens is you create your own reality in that. So as soon as you move away from something, your brain says, okay, we're in danger. We need to move away from this thing. And it will support you with survival physiology. Now, if you actually move towards it, and, and my, my youngest son just started uh, college. So he, of course, there's a lot of anxiety about going in. And right. I said, hey, when you're in there, when you're walking, lean forward on, your, on your, the, the, the balls of your feet. Like move, feel forward and really feel like your, your shoulders are moving forward. You're moving forward. Because that almost tricks your brain into giving you endogenous opiates, kind of the runner's high thing and dopamine, which tells you you're on the right tra track. Whereas if you go in there going, oh my God, this is going to be, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be hard. You know, what if, what if the teacher asked me a question? You're going to secrete dopamine or, or epinephrine and cortisol, which is of course going to make you more afraid and fire up that body even more. And the last thing on that is when, when we fire up all these, these stress chemicals, these, these survival hormones, is that we paralyze the part of our brain that would actually help us the most, which is the prefrontal cortex. So not only do we make worries when we're in this sort of um, pulling back afraid stage, but we paralyze the part of our brain that would tell us, hey, those worries really aren't real, right? So we lose the part of our brain that tells us, that reassures us, and then we start making up worse and worse worries so we actually believe the worries, which of course goes into our body, which of course puts us farther into survival physiology and start this cascade that we can't get out of. So breathing, to answer your original question, is one of those things that brings us back into sort of presence in our body. Prefrontal cortex comes back online. We start thinking, hey, you know, I'm not in, I'm not in as big trouble as I think that I am, which allows us to kind of just relax, get our faculties back and, and follow that, you know, follow, okay, I can do some more breathing. Andrew Huberman talks about the physiological side, you know, two quick sniffs in through your nose and then long, slow exhale through your mouth. And I have this little process that I teach my anxiety peeps, which is three sniffs in, really expand your chest, hold it at the top, 
And see if you can feel the stillness at the top of your breath. And then close your mouth, close your teeth, and then breathe out through your teeth, making a hissing sound. Really elongate that, that exhalation. And as you listen to the hissing sound, imagine in your mind's eye an overinflated tire that's just starting to relax, that's just starting to decompress. So it goes like this. So you go, really expand, hold, feel the stillness at the top, and then And I can't do this too many times because I'll, I do it to, to relax myself. So I'll yeah. actually put myself in a bit of a trance if I do it too many times. And one of the things I'll tell people is that it's much more effective to use your body to calm your mind than it is to try and use your mind to calm your body. Tell me a little bit about how you feel um, social media is playing a role in anxiety and perpetuating it or spreading it or not at all. I could write a book on this, but I <laughs> you mean, should write the book on this. Yeah. Well, I mean, dopamine, it, dopamine's the molecule of more, right? So, so when we can, when we can visit 15 beautiful locations on Instagram in inside of a minute, you know, no human being actually can compete with that. So we see a lot of couples now where, you know, one of them is always saying, well, you're always on your phone to the other. Or there's two of them and they both are always on their phone, so they don't connect anymore. So social media, especially in our kids, you know, here's we have this system in our, our brain called the social engagement system. Eye contact, tone of voice, prosody of voice, which is kind of like the lilting uh, um, body language and facial expressions. So this is hardwired into us as human beings uh, from children. But the thing is, children aren't getting face-to-face -face connection anymore, especially with COVID. But in general, even before COVID, kids were getting a lot more focused on their screens than they were on their friends. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that in high schools. Like kids aren't forming friendships the way that they used to because their immediate gratification needs, those dopaminergic um, instant gratification is much more seductive to the brain than actually being able to stay present with another human being in yeah, friendship you, and in connection. You just unfriend someone with the click of a button. Like yeah. it's so immediate and like relationships take work. Friendships work. You need to nurture them and check on your friends and go out with your friends and build, have conversation. Like it's a connection having friendships. They said there was some research that just came out this week that like, the importance of having friendships are important for your well-being and your mental health and your wellness is to have those connections and friendships. This is critical. Yeah. So we get all this pseudo connection through Instagram, Facebook, whatever. It kind of feels to the it's it I analogy, you know, the analogy I draw is like Doritos, right? Like, you know, you you can it will give you it will give you some sustenance in your system to eat Doritos, but it's not nourishing. You know, it tastes good, but it's not nourishing. Uh, whereas face-to-face -face interaction with your friends uh, is nourishing, does start developing this social engagement system. And the problem is that the children aren't engaging with other children. And we need to mature this social engagement system because this is the, this is the system that we use to soothe ourselves as well. 
So if this social engagement system isn't being matured in our kids because they're fixated on their screens and no longer getting this face-to-face contact, which matures the social engagement system, of course we're going to have a generation of kids that are completely anxious because they can't soothe themselves. You know, and, and what they use to soothe themselves is the same thing that causes the problem in the first place. So they get to be late teens. They've been on their phones on Snapchat for five years. That's what they use to kind of soothe themselves. Then they go off to university or college or whatever, and the Snapchat isn't doing it anymore. It's not enough. And, and, and because the social engagement system hasn't been fostered in them. So that we got this epidemic of childhood anxiety because that social engagement system hasn't been matured. And this is a real problem. And, and, and what should parents just, they have children who are suffering from anxiety and they feel, they feel it and they know it and they're aware of it. Yeah. What is something that you would recommend that they do? Touch for one. I don't think we touch our kids enough. Um, there's this little process I get people to do, uh, putting your hand on your child's back and then you put your hand on over their heart. You know, with teenagers, it's a little harder because they're, you know, <laughs> like, don't touch me. Yeah, don't touch me. I'm, I've had it, you know. Uh, but with kids, they love that. They love that. Just, you know, I'm just, dad's going to hold your heart for a few, you know, for a few minutes or, you know, 30 seconds. Mom's just going to hold your heart for 30 seconds. We're just going to sit here, you know. The other thing is eye contact, you know, making eye contact. Sometimes you can make a game, you know, around uh, the table with smaller kids. It's like, okay, what, what am I feeling when my face looks like this? And you go like, you make a smile or you make it like, a, like that. And the kids actually go, oh, you're, you're feeling like angry or upset. It's like, yeah. So what you're doing is you're engaging their social engagement system face to face. Cause we have a, a part of our brain specifically devoted to recognizing faces. That's why, you know, when you, when you put a, a circle and then a couple of slits and a, and a, and a, a line, we will see that as a face. And there's a, there's a, if people have a stroke in that area, they get something called propopagnosia, which is basically the inability to recognize faces. So we have, we have a dedicated structure in our brain to recognize faces. So if we use that, especially with our kids, facial expression, you know, even if you have a little game with your kids, you know, we're going to make eye contact for the next 15 seconds and we're going to, you know, just connect. And if you can do that sometimes with your hand on their chest, sometimes it's too much for them, you know, because especially if kids haven't had this connection and you're all of a sudden given, so you gradually bring in, so touch, you know, breathing together, you know, it's like, we're going to breathe together so that when that, when they do miss the the winning goal in the soccer game or whatever, and they're Mm -hmm. really upset, it's like, okay, we've practiced this before. We've practiced putting our hand on our chest, connecting to each other and breathing into ourselves as a way of soothing. And once you practice that, you have this skill now that they can use for the rest of their lives that grounds them. So we live in this cognitive society of just saying, it's okay, don't worry, this is all right. All this verbal stuff is fine. But unless you match that up with the feeling stuff and you get into the subcortical structures of their brain, which are developing at this time, and show those subcortical, those deeper structures, that they are safe at a feeling level, not just at a thinking level. That's what really helps us survive as a species is this connection to each other, which we are losing, you know, and there's another, you know, book in that as well. So it's really about connecting with your kids and it doesn't have to be long, like make it fun, make it a game. Because as soon as you, as soon as you bring play into it, you activate the, the sympathetic, the fight or flight, and you activate the rest and digest at the same time. There are very few things that activate those systems at the same time. Typically, 
what activates the sympathetic fight or flight and the parasympathetic rest and digest or withdraw is trauma. So when you get traumatized, your sympathetic nervous system is all up. And then you also have this urge to kind of completely dissociate as well. So if you can bring that sympathetic and parasympathetic action together in a positive way, like in play, in play, you start, you start teaching that, that child's uh, autonomic nervous system that I can activate both at the same time. It doesn't mean the end of the world. It's actually something fun. So you start giving that, 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 that program of sympathetic, parasympathetic co-activation is trauma. And you, br you give it a bit of a lobotomy. You, you change it. So it's like, hey, I can be activated on both sympathetic. And, and this is why children play. And this is another thing we're, we're losing. Like children don't play. They sit there and it's like they play video games, which okay. basically just winds up their sympathetic nervous system without activating the parasympathetic at the same time. So they're creating more of the problem. So it's really about play. Can you, can you get your kids to play more? Can you play with them physically? Can you play with them? Throw a ball around the house. Like do something that engages so their body. Games with your family, playing sports with your children will help activate both the fight or flight and the sympathetic. Especially if there's no goal to it, especially if no one wins, right? Because if somebody wins the game, then it's like the, the sympathetic rises up and there's a whole bunch of emotional stuff that goes along with that. But yeah. just tossing a ball around the house. The other thing that, uh, that one family, what family does is they have a, a balloon and they blow up the balloon and they make sure the balloon doesn't touch the ground. Right. So they're all running around the house. Like you got to make sure that you don't, you know, run into your China Very cabinet tanked. or whatever, but it's just, it, and they're all laughing and screaming because it's, you know, you don't want it to hit the ground. Like this stuff creates bonding within families, activates the, uh, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system and uh, engages the social engagement system. Like it's everything you need and it's everything we're not getting. Teaching, these yeah. days like we need to activate our kids bodies as well and touch and so that they feel safe at this subcortical level not just reassuring them reassuring them is fine but unless you get the feeling part of it too and this is true with therapy as well like if we're only dealing with changing your thoughts you'll feel better but it won't last it won't so last. you have to add the feeling part if you don't add the feeling part in and play is one of those things that really activates the feeling part as well so you get both. You need both to heal is basically what I'm saying in this long, this long rant. It, it's actually extremely valuable. Parents have to be equipped with different skills. Totally. They don't just need to put clothes on kids' backs and get them to school. They yeah. need to give them, you know, social skills, emotional skills, yeah. and really financial skills, like things like that, that they need to. And as I guess, as we learn more and we get more educated about these things, it's never too late to start implementing new techniques and really... Yeah owning and understanding a little bit more about this behind us. Dr. Russell, I have taken so much of your time. Oh, it's fine. Yeah. Extremely valuable. Where can people find you and follow you? Uh, probably the best place is Instagram, you know, and all my stuff is the anxiety MD, not the anxiety doctor, the anxiety MD. So. I am super grateful for you and your time. Thank you so much. Yo, you're welcome. And it's a pleasure to work with you. I, I really feel like we have a, a bond that we can work together with. I, yeah. This is great. I really appreciate you reaching out. We're just getting started. All right. Awesome. Thank I you. love hearing that. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I would be so grateful if you subscribe to the podcast and I would love to hear from you. Send us a message. Let us know who you'd like to see on the show and we will do our best to try to get them on the episodes. Thank you so much. 